This podcast is brought to you by the Government Contracts Practice at Arnold & Porter, providing counsel and thought leadership to federal contractors, and the PubK Group, publisher of daily news and commentary for federal employees, contractors, and their counsel. Hi, Mike McGill here. Welcome to the first proper episode of our podcast. It's a packed one. I'm going to start with a roadmap to everything we cover in this episode. But before doing that, I wanted to note that much of this was recorded prior to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, with the full-scale invasion starting on February 24th. We're following developments closely, focusing, as you would expect, on issues affecting government contractors, from sanctions on Russian institutions and state-owned companies, to supply chain ripple effects on commodities like oil and palladium, to heightened cybersecurity vigilance expected of contractors, especially contractors with security clearances and access to classified information. Expect to hear more from us on these and related issues in the future. For this episode, we're going to cover a number of recent developments and current issues affecting government contractors. In the first segment, PubK's Bill Over will summarize four high-profile developments. President Biden's February 2nd executive order on the use of project labor agreements for federal construction contracts the President's National Security Memorandum on Improving Cybersecurity for Department of Defense, Intelligence Community, and National Security Information Systems, the end of the Lockheed Martin acquisition of Aerojet Rocketdyne, and a Federal Circuit decision on recovery of pandemic-related contractor costs. The second segment is Bill's brief discussion with my colleague, Craig Margolis, on the Department of Justice's annual False Claims Act statistics. The third segment is my longer conversation with Andre Jevarola, the head of our firm's cartel investigation practice. Andre joined us last year after serving for years in the antitrust division of the Department of Justice, including as the first director of criminal litigation for that division. In his role at the department, Andre supervised antitrust litigation matters across the country and helped formulate critical policies and practices for the antitrust division. Andre supervised all cartel litigation matters for the department, including those affecting labor markets and involving government contractors. My conversation with Andre focuses on the issues surrounding the department's announcement late last year of indictments of defense contractor employees alleged to have entered into illegal no-poach or non-solicitation agreements, impeding the labor market for certain engineers. You may have heard about that announcement. It's drawn a lot of attention within the contractor community. Because Andre was directly involved in and oversaw the department's enforcement in that area, he offers an interesting perspective on the current enforcement environment. And of course, some practical considerations on steps contractors might take to mitigate risks. Although we spend most of our discussion on no-poach agreements, we also touch on the administration's opposition to the Lockheed Martin Aerojet Rocketdyne deal and the procurement collusion strike force. Now, as an aside, the timing of the Aerojet Rocketdyne acquisition coming to a head now is interesting because, as you may remember, it was Russia's 2014 annexation of Crimea that prompted a push from many stakeholders, including Senator McCain and others in Congress, and Aerojet Rocketdyne itself, among other contractors, to push to develop an alternative to the Russian RD-180 rocket that the U.S. has relied upon for some time. So the further disentangling from Russia and its effects on contractors is something we'll be following. The last segment of the podcast will be a bit of a lightning round. I'll cover a few other developments from the month of government contracting, including a couple important decisions, one from the Court of Federal Claims and one from the Government Accountability Office, an update on the Department of Labor contractor portal, the doing away with Dunn's numbers across government, and the new FAR minimum wage rule. Without further ado, here's Bill with some key headlines from the past month. (music) 
On February 4th, President Joe Biden issued an executive order directing federal agencies to use project labor agreements for any large-scale construction projects. The order notes that these projects are often plagued by efficiency and timeliness issues, in part due to uncertainties in the labor pool, the number of contractors involved in a single project, and uncertainty about the terms and conditions of employment of various groups of workers. Project labor agreements are intended to mitigate these issues and to help resolve labor disputes in a manner that avoids work stoppages. The order requires pre-hire collective bargaining agreements for any federal construction project valued at $35 million or more. Prior to awarding any contract or obligating funds, agencies must require every contractor or subcontractor to agree to negotiate PLAs with the appropriate labor organizations. The order outlines the elements that must be included in PLAs as well as the conditions under which a waiver may be granted by a senior agency official. Agencies must publish data showing their use of PLAs and report their use of these agreements to OMB on a quarterly basis. The order directs the FAR Council to promulgate regulations to this effect and requires OMB and the Secretaries of Labor and Defense to establish training for contracting officers on the creation and use of PLAs. The order applies to any solicitation issued on or after the effective date of the new regulations, but agencies are strongly encouraged to comply immediately. The order has already drawn opposition from construction industry trade associations who argue that it discriminates against non-union contractors bidding on federal construction projects. In a recent directive, President Biden expanded last year's executive order on improving federal cybersecurity to cover national security, defense, and intelligence systems. The order requires the Department of Defense and Intelligence community to institute multiple requirements, such as zero trust models, multi-factor authentication, cloud security, and encryption that the President previously ordered for civilian systems. Lockheed Martin has abandoned its bid to acquire Aerojet Rocketdyne, a manufacturer of missile components including scramjet engines and control systems. The deal had drawn scrutiny from Capitol Hill, including concern from Senator Elizabeth Warren. However, other lawmakers had expressed support for the deal. Eventually, the Federal Trade Commission sued to block the merger on antitrust grounds, saying it would limit competition and drive up prices. Lockheed promised to allow Aerojet to continue selling its products to competitors, but FTC was unpersuaded, and now Lockheed has abandoned its plans. And finally, the Civilian Board of Contract Appeals affirmed an earlier holding that an unforeseen pandemic does not shift the risk for any unexpected costs under a firm fixed-price contract from the contractor to the government. CBCA first reached that conclusion in 2020 in its decision in Pernick-Circa Joint Venture versus the Department of State. That case involved the cost of performance delays arising from work stoppage related to an outbreak of the Ebola virus. Because the contract was fixed price, the board said the government had no responsibility for any unexpected costs incurred by the contractor. In News Inc. versus the Department of Health and Human Services, the contractor filed a claim for costs it incurred after the agency directed it to stop work on a project at the beginning of a pandemic-related shutdown in 2020. The board said no go on the claims for the same reason it gave in Pernix Circa. As a consolation prize, because the contract was later terminated for convenience, the board held the contractor was entitled to recover termination-related costs.
At the end of January, the Department of Justice released its False Claims Act recoveries for fiscal year 2021. DOJ announced that it had recovered more than $5.6 billion last year. I recently had the chance to talk about these figures with Arnold and Porter partner Craig Margolis. Craig is co-chair of the firm's False Claims Act practice. His work is focused on compliance and internal investigations with a special emphasis on the FCA, procurement fraud, healthcare fraud, and the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. Previously, Craig was an assistant U.S. attorney. In that role, he prosecuted healthcare fraud and abuse and other crimes. Craig, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Well, thank you. So what did uh, what did the numbers look like this year? What's the big takeaway? So big numbers this year. Uh, and I always hesitate to talk about numbers because my poor math skills are the reasons that I'm talking to you today as a lawyer. <laughs> I suppose. <laughs> but we'll see if I can manage these numbers anyway. Because we do we do track these numbers. You know, the quick plug for our blog, which hopefully some of your listeners tune in on or, to or subscribe to, I should say, our Keynotes blog. Uh, you know, we track these recoveries in, in real time. If we have time at the end, I'll talk about why we think we were off a little bit this year compared to, you know, the department's own uh, reporting of its statistics. But not to bury the lead any further, it was the second highest year on record in terms of False Claims Act recoveries. So this year... The department uh, reported a total take of approximately 5.65 billion with a B dollars. Only 2014 was bigger. Uh, that was 6.16 billion. So it was a banner year for our friends in uh, civil fraud uh, this past fiscal year. That's a huge number. So where are those funds coming from? What kind of recoveries did we see, and what was instigating those? Yeah. So like most years, it, it was primarily in the healthcare space, which I think is, again, probably good news for most of your listeners that on the procurement side, uh, it's a very small fraction uh, of, of, I mean, really like rounding errors uh, compared to the bigger number. What's very interesting about this year's numbers, and as far as I can tell, it's the first time this has ever happened, um, the vast majority of the recoveries did not come from key TAM relator cases, either intervened or non-intervened. Interesting. Um, and that's that's highly unusual. By by our calculation, somewhere on the order of well, I'll I'll, I'll phrase because of my math poverty, I'll phrase it the other way. Only 1.66 billion of the 5.65 billion appeared to have come from relator cases. Okay, so the other approximate four billion seems to be from direct cases by DOJ, and and we've never seen that before. Wow. Uh, we think it's largely because of some of the of the opioid recoveries uh, last fiscal year, which were very significant. And so this could be a one-off. This isn't necessarily the the start of a new trend, but it is highly unusual. Uh, you know, typically, the, you know, the folks at fraud get most of their leads on cases from relators. Uh, that's the whole point of the key TAM provisions of the False Claims Act. So to see such a significant recovery that comes not from key TAMs is uh, it's highly unusual. Right. And, and the Purdue and the Sackler settlements were significant numbers there. Yeah, I think, I think those numbers themselves are just about $3 billion. So what can we expect in the coming year? What do you see coming down the pike? Yeah, so um, a couple of things. One of the things that the department reports on is the number of, of new key TAM cases that have been filed. So while I told you just a second ago that, you know, these are uh, 
uh, you know, the vast majority of the recoveries didn't come from ketams. That's cold comfort, okay? Because uh, there are just a, a staggering number of ketam cases that are being filed uh, every week. So 800, 801 to be precise, uh, is the number that were reported was reported by the Department of New Ketam cases filed last fiscal year. That averages out to about 11 cases a week, right? So the vast majority of those are probably still under seal. We don't know what they look like yet, um, but we should anticipate that there will be significant numbers of cases that relate to uh, stimulus spending, right? COVID relief um, money, the Defense Procurement Act cases, sorry, uh, monies have been paid out. Um, there's the cyber fraud initiative um, that the department is very, uh, very big on that Lisa Monaco in, in particular is, is deems it as extremely important. So I would not at all be surprised not to necessarily see a significant uptick in the numbers for procurement next year necessarily because there's a lag, but I do anticipate a significant uptick in procurement side cases in the next year that will, that, you know, unfortunately a number of your listeners probably already have subpoenas or they're representing folks who have subpoenas. And so none of it's public and hopefully never will be, but we'll start to see, you know, litigation increase in these areas, I expect. Yeah, we'll be following those cases uh, in PubK. And I'm sure you'll be following them on your blog as well. Uh, we will certainly do our best. Oh, and then the one last thing, if we have time to just talk about, so we were off by about a billion dollars. And so you'd say shame on us because we do take pride in trying to report our recoveries real time. But to be fair to us, there is a little bit of a, of a methodology issue that we have. And the short version is, you know, we do our tracking in real time based on press releases by the department. The, the department, as is not unusual, towards the end of the fiscal year, there's a big flurry of new settlements that are announced. Those settlements sometimes are announced before the settlement is final. And so therefore, they may count it in the next fiscal year, or the opposite is true. Uh, they may announce a settlement after the end of the fiscal year, but the date on the settlement agreement is, say, a week earlier in September instead of October. So we won't count it. We think about $700 million of the numbers because of that. So we think we're actually pretty close, but for these methodology issues that we we're just yeah. talking about. Very good. Excellent work. Well, thank you for joining me today. I, I appreciate your time taking a, a quick look at those very significant recoveries and uh, good luck in the future with your math. Well, thank you. I enjoyed speaking with you. It's Mike again. Thanks to Craig and Bill. And if you didn't catch it, the False Claims Act blog is FCA Keynotes. You can find the address in our show notes or just Google FCA Keynotes blog. If you're familiar with the FCA, you know key is spelled Q-U-I. There may be as many different pronunciations of that word as there are FCA lawyers. Maybe we'll do a fun piece at some point on the proper pronunciation, but I digress. We're going to segue now from DOJ enforcement of the FCA to DOJ enforcement of antitrust laws and my conversation with Andre Jeverola. Given I previewed that at some length in the intro, we're going to jump right into the conversation. It lasts for about 30 minutes and covers a range of issues, but focuses primarily on the no poach agreements that are getting so much attention. Hi, Andre. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Mike. Uh, glad to be here. and I look forward to chatting with you. It's great to have you. So we're going to discuss legal restrictions on non-solicitation and so-called no poach agreements. The restrictions on these types of agreements and wage fixing agreements have existed for a long time. 
we may get into the history and exactly how long in a bit. But at the same time, it's not uncommon in, in my experience to see non-compete and non-solicitation terms, including in teaming agreements, supplier agreements, corporate transaction agreements. And I don't think it's an overstatement to say a recent Department of Justice announcement of criminal enforcement targeting no poach agreements, non-solicitation agreements, has sent shockwaves through the government contracting community. I think that response is a reflection of the fact that these types of restrictions are not uncommon. And given that heightened interest and that background, I'm excited to have the chance to discuss with you as someone who has approached these issues from both the government enforcement perspective and the private counsel perspective. And I know while with the Department of Justice, you were in the thick of it. As the Director of Criminal Litigation for DOJ's Antitrust Division, you conducted the division's first criminal no-poach investigation after the DOJ and the FTC issued the antitrust guidance for human resource professionals in 2016, and you supervised the division's first labor market cases, all of which we'll touch on. But to start, can you provide the lay of the land in terms of the law in this area, the source of law? What's the legal basis for the restrictions on no-poach and wage fixing agreements. Sure, Mike. And just starting with the basics, uh, when we talk about antitrust law here, there's actually a specific law at issue, and it's called the Sherman Act. Um, it was a law that was passed back in 1890, so it's been around for quite a while. One of the things that the Sherman Act prohibits is agreements between competitors that limit competition. And the key ones uh, for our conversation being price fixing, bid rigging, and market allocation, these types of agreements are considered crimes under U.S. law and have been for really the entirety of the life of the Sherman Act. But what we're going to talk about today is a new twist on uh, applying the Sherman Act, and that's the DOJ's current approach to antitrust enforcement in labor markets. And, and we're going to talk about some of the cases they've filed recently where they're applying these concepts into this new area. Great. So when we boil this down to base principles or, or core concepts for those who, like me, do not specialize in antitrust and competition law, we're talking about legal limits on the restraints companies can impose on the labor market, with labor naturally being a major input for government contractors. So although the source of law may be the same, we can distinguish these scenarios that we'll focus on today for the most part from those that involve restraints on a company's outputs, price fixing that affects the price of a company's products and services, market allocation or bid rigging that affects who the company sells its products and services to. Here we're dealing with limits on competition and improper coordination between companies, which is the same, but it's the competition for labor as an input to companies, including government contractors. Now, I understand there's been a gradual evolution, if you will, of the enforcement in this area over the past 10 years, and, and that history is informative, helpful to understand how we got to where we are now and where things may go from here. Could you walk us through that background? Sure. And in terms of modern antitrust enforcement of the labor markets, what we're really talking about just happened in the last uh, decade or so. How it started was uh, out in Silicon Valley, where some of the biggest tech companies you've heard of, and these are the companies that put the phones in your pocket, computers on your desk, uh, and host some of the websites and software that we use every day. DOJ filed a case against them. This was a civil case, basically alleging illegal uh, no-poach conduct. So the conduct that they dealt with in that case was agreements between the companies not to cold call each other's employees and try to recruit them away. 
and DOJ filed a civil case. Most of the companies, or actually all of the companies, eventually settled the case. Some did it sooner than others. That case exposed a limitation in DOJ's ability to conduct enforcement in this area. And that limitation is, when we're talking about civil cases, the only remedy available for DOJ under the Sherman Act is an injunction. So there's no penalties. All you can do is stop the conduct. There is a side penalty that folks may want to know about as well, which is there's always suits for damages uh, where plaintiffs can file private suits and claim that they were victims of this legal violation. And and in the Silicon Valley case, that happened in a class action where the companies ultimately had to settle for about $400 in in damages. So even though there was no DOJ financial penalty, uh, the, the company still ended up paying a lot of money. And then next, after the Silicon Valley cases, we'd have to fast forward about six or so years. And this is where we see DOJ raising the stakes. The DOJ and the FTC uh, made a public announcement. Uh, This is the HR guidance, Mike, that you mentioned earlier. Uh, And the announcement was that going forward, the DOJ would treat two types of conducts as criminal violations of the Sherman Act. So so no more civil cases for this conduct. The first type of conduct is wage fixing. Wage fixing is when competitors for workers agree with each other on the wages that they will pay. In the DOJ's view, this is similar to price fixing, where sellers agree on what prices they're going to sell their products for. And I think we're all familiar that price fixing has long been illegal, but beginning in 2016, the DOJ applied these same concepts to wages paid to employees. The second type of conduct is called no poach. No poach can encompass different types of hiring restrictions. So, for example, an agreement not to hire another company's employees would qualify. But what's more surprising is that an agreement not to solicit another employee's would also qualify. Uh, This would be similar to the no cold calling agreements that happened in Silicon Valley. After 2016, the DOJ was clear, if it's wage fixing or it's no poach, we're going to go after you criminally. So everybody saw that announcement. And I think was waiting to see what would happen. But in order to really see what the DOJ would do, you'd have to wait another four years. So now we fast forward four years uh, before we see the first case filed under this new policy. What happened then was that the DOJ filed its first wage fixing case. Uh, This was actually a small case down in Texas involving physical therapists. So an individual who owned a staffing company for physical therapists was indicted And the allegations uh, in that case were that he basically was reaching out to other physical therapy staffing companies and trying to get them to agree to lower the hourly rates they would pay the therapists. So after this case was filed, the defendant actually tried to move to dismiss it, saying, wait, you know, wage fixing is not a crime, only price fixing is a crime. Uh, And the judge shot that down pretty quickly. And the judge was not troubled by the fact that he was the first defendant prosecuted under this new approach. And the judge basically added that away and said, well, there's a first time for everything. And this is the first time for this case. So that was four years after the the announcement of the new policy. We didn't have to wait long for the next shoe to drop. So one month later, uh, the DOJ filed its first no-poach case. And this was actually a case against a company called Surgical Care Affiliates, or SCA, which owns outpatient uh, centers in, in the healthcare industry. 
So the SCA case was filed shortly before President Biden's inauguration, uh, and the allegations in that case were that SCA had agreed with other healthcare companies not to solicit each other's senior employees. Okay, that that that's very interesting. The timing, and if I'm tracking, the enforcement activity dates back to the Obama administration, and then the surgical care affiliates indictment that you just walked through that occurred in January of 2021. So do I do we have a read yet on President Biden's administration's approach yet? We have some good indications, Mike. I think you're right that all of these uh, case activities happened before President Biden. But since he's taken office, what I would say is that this enforcement has only ramped up. Additional cases have been filed since then. By my count, there are two more cases against companies and 12 more individuals that were charged for labor market antitrust violations. Not only that, but in July 2021, President Biden issued his executive order on competition. And in that executive order, he made clear that labor markets were one of his key areas of focus for antitrust enforcement. And if you read that executive order, you walk away from it thinking if if there's anything that's going to happen with President Biden, it's that the agencies are going to get more aggressive. And at the beginning, I alluded to the Department of Justice announcements from December. I was referring, of course, to the the recent announced indictments of individuals, though no companies at this point based on allegedly illegal no-poach agreements between a defense contractor and certain suppliers. And as you've explained, the statutory restrictions are old. And it's not as though DOJ has declined to enforce these laws in the past, and, and you've been involved in that. What, what makes this announcement from the Department of Justice so interesting and significant, especially for the government contracting community? So the most recent case filed, the one that you're talking about, Mike, involved a government contractor and its um, suppliers. And that is an important case for multiple reasons. One, it's the first case outside of healthcare where there's been enforcement and these labor market issues. And in the December case, we're talking about companies in the aerospace industry, a customer and its suppliers being accused of engaging in both no-hire and non-solicitation agreements. And essentially what the DOJ alleged was that the customer was orchestrating agreements between its outsourcing suppliers, basically telling them, do not hire each other's employees, but also the customer agreeing that it would not hire away its supplier's employees. So that's the conduct that's involved there. As you know, so far only individuals have been charged, but um, just very recent news, uh, one of the companies has publicly announced that it's a target of the DOJ investigation here. Um, and if you follow DOJ speak at all, the fact that they're calling themselves a target is important because a target in DOJ language is a party that's likely to be charged with a crime. So it sounds like company cases are likely to follow in this investigation. So without expecting you, Andre, obviously, to to predict the future, is your sense that this case is a bellwether for the aerospace and defense industry and for government contractors generally? What should contractors expect looking forward? or What might they expect looking forward? I think this case is important precedent for the industry. One, the types of arrangements that the indictment talks about, you know, suppliers and 
their customers, whether it's subs and primes or teaming partners, these are very common arrangements in the government contracting industry. And it's also just as common that some of these arrangements will include hiring restrictions. So I think uh, the fact that a case was brought here is a real wake-up call for the industry. But it's also important to note that this industry is in, really in focus uh, in terms of enforcement from the Biden administration. Earlier, I mentioned the Biden executive order. In that executive order, he also names a few industries where he thinks there needs to be more competition, and the defense industry is one of them. So now we're talking about two issues that have come up in the Biden executive order. One is labor markets. The second is the defense industry. And the aerospace case we're talking about really combines those two priority areas into one case. But according to President Biden, the defense industry is an area that he's going to look at closely and is going to tell the agencies to look at closely. And in fact, he ordered the Defense uh, Department to do an analysis and a report of competition in the defense industrial base. And this also just came out recently that the DOD issued its report. And one of the major facts or findings in the report were that since the 1990s, the number of prime defense contractors has gone down from 51 to just five. So the DOD is highlighting the consolidation in the industry as being a competition problem. And if you're one of those five companies remaining, I think you can expect really intense scrutiny of your business practices uh, for antitrust issues. And that runs the gamut from you know, both sales, pricing, but also hiring and staffing. And the other thing to note is that even if you're not one of those five companies, if you might be a subcontractor or a teaming partner, it's not difficult to get swept up in the net when the DOJ is looking at the big companies because they'll start seeing your records. And a lot of times, you know, the DOJ will start one place and the investigation will grow. And then you end up with smaller companies involved as well. The final note I would say with regard to the administration's priorities is that it's really kind of wanting to pursue competition across all aspects. So, you know, we've talked about some, but they're also focused on, for example, mergers. And we saw recently that the FTC announced uh, it would challenge Lockheed Martin's uh, acquisition of Aerojet Rocketdyne. And then we saw sh soon after the FTC said it would do that, the companies announced that they were abandoning the merger. So it's Basically, a time where if you're in the defense and government contracting industry, you can expect a lot of antitrust scrutiny across all of your business activities. So, Andre, you, you touched on this, but I gather it's accurate at this point to state this is a risk area that companies should be wary of regardless of administration. Put another way, this is not the type of issue for which enforcement will be limited to administrations of one party. This is not the, t the type of issue to be concerned about just during the Biden administration. I think that's right. Um, as I mentioned earlier, these types of issues began to really coalesce in the Obama administration, you know, from the Silicon Valley cases to the 2016 uh, HR guidance carried through the Trump administration with the first cases that were actually filed. And then now... Heading into the Biden administration, all the signals we're seeing is that this administration is really doubling down on that approach. So, you know, I think this area is not going away anytime soon. 
And if anything, I think the agencies will only increase their scrutiny of uh, this type of conduct. Government contractors and, and their executives are highly focused on this area, the area being restrictions on, on labor markets in the government contracts community in light of the Department of Justice's announcements. And, and we're not offering legal advice, of course, but I would be interested in your general thoughts about what companies might consider doing now, both to a prepare to respond to scrutiny from government regulators, and then also to update their policies, procedures, practices to improve compliance and contain risk. This might be a, a good point, Mike, to bring up that for companies, this is a a time to be proactive. For example, just a couple of years ago in 2019, the DOJ started um, a new initiative led by the antitrust division called the Procurement Collusion Strike Force, or PCSF. The PCSF is led by the antitrust division, but it also includes uh, U.S. attorneys' offices and many different inspector general offices. And the mission of the PCSF is to root out and prosecute collusion and fraud affecting government contracting. So in terms of government resources, there's really a lot being devoted in the government contracting space. And you know, what I often point out to clients is often your you know, clients and their executives will be familiar with the risks in sales and pricing, but they may be less familiar with the types of risks we're seeing in recent cases that involve uh, labor and staffing. And what I point out to companies, uh, and I think is a really important takeaway from all of this, is that in this industry, there really are no safe harbors for any type of restrictions relating to uh, hiring and staffing. And what I mean by that is there's no safe space where it's completely permissible to agree to hiring restrictions with competitors. Now, that doesn't mean that you can never engage in this conduct, but it does mean you have to be very careful um, and any restrictions have to be carefully tied to legitimate business arrangements. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, these types of business arrangements are common in the industry, whether it's teaming or prime sub. There's a lot of different ways that companies work together. And as part of that relationship might have hiring restrictions. And it's very important to be careful there and to make sure things are very uh, tightly drafted and tailored to the legitimate business relationship. In the past, I think companies had a little bit more comfort. For us antitrust lawyers, there's a doctrine called ancillary restraints that basically says, you know, if a restriction on competition is closely tied to a legitimate business arrangement, that usually is not a, a violation and, and doesn't give rise to significant risk. But what this aerospace case is telling us is the DOJ's view of ancillary restraints is very narrow. So as I mentioned earlier, one of the agreements that the DOJ alleges in the indictment involves a, a customer and its outsourcing suppliers. And of course, it's perfectly legitimate for companies to buy outsource services or to have outsourced personnel uh, working in their facilities. Uh, here, in this case, it was engineering services. And really, the whole industry couldn't function if primes couldn't buy products or couldn't buy services from their suppliers. So you would think that this is a safe space in terms of hiring restrictions. But what the case that was filed in December is telling us is that even these types of conduct uh, and these types of parties will be scrutinized by the DOJ. 
and, and they might file some cases, uh, which is what we're seeing now. You know, on the compliance point and, and the point about containing risk, I find it interesting that the things that the DOJ says and does ostensibly to detect wrongdoing in this area, and, and I'm sure to actually detect wrongdoing, but also pre- presumably as a deterrent to strike fear into companies. One example is in connection with the procurement collusion strike force, the government's touting how it is spending its resources to train 10,000 government personnel on the rules and how to, to detect problems. And when I, when I hear that, I think contractors need to meet that commitment with their own commitment to devote the resources to train their own personnel. So when discussing best practices to, to, to contain risk in this area, as with other compliance areas, the importance of an effective education program, I think, is, is crucial. A- another example from the PCSF is the government's use of data analytics to try to catch illegal relationships. The analytic tools available to the government are, are only going to become more sophisticated, I'm sure, which is going to make compliance more and, and more important. So, again, we're not offering legal advice, Andre, but I'd be interested in, in talking through some of the considerations relevant in establishing agreements that are more likely to withstand scrutiny. Any guidance in terms of, for example, supplier agreements? Yeah, and uh, going back to your earlier point, Mike, in terms of the resources that uh, the government is devoting to this area, I think it's a good rule of thumb for compliance departments where you know, if the government's putting more resources into an area, that that is an area where you also want to put more, more resources um, in terms of compliance because that's where government actions are going to come from. Uh, so I think that's a really good point. And, and given the recent focus in the government contracting area, I think it's become a very tough environment for companies doing business in this space. It becomes a matter of adjusting to the new normal. And that new normal means that you really have to evaluate any agreement you have with another, another company that restricts competition for employees. It doesn't matter if the company is a supplier or it's a prime or a sub or some kind of teaming partner. Um, as I said earlier, those types of relationships are not going to automatically absolve any hiring restrictions. And that's what we're seeing in the aerospace case. So companies really need to take a hard look at any of those agreements. Um, I do think that a thorough evaluation will show that a lot of these agreements are perfectly legal and in fact necessary for the companies to provide the government with the necessary products and services. But it's important for the companies to be prepared for the aggressive view that the DOJ is now showing and make sure that they've evaluated these company, these agreements and also that they've properly documented these agreements. You know, I think if I were a company operating today and it was necessary for me to have hiring restrictions in some of my business relationships, I would make sure it's fully documented and built into every contract that I'm entering into and that I'm also building into the justifications for the hiring restriction and making sure that the justifications are sufficient to just you know to make sure that the hiring restriction is legally valid. So I don't think it's the case that you can never engage in a hiring restriction or a non-solicit, that type of agreement. But what you do need to have is proper justification and proper documentation. And one other piece of advice I would give companies is when you do document these, make sure you properly track them and have all of that information handy uh, because you do, you just don't know when the DOJ is going to show up at your door 
and start asking questions about your business practices and your hiring practices. And it's much better to have all of that information prepared and ready at your fingertips than to have to backtrack and do a historical review of everything that's happened uh, to try to figure out answers to the DOJ's questions. Right. And, and so from a practical standpoint, at the organizational level, one of the fundamental steps that companies need to be taking is identifying who's responsible in this area. So who is going to be reviewing the contracts, who's going to be maintaining those records and be prepared to respond if and when scrutiny comes. So, Andre, as a government contractor, as a government contracts lawyer, when I hear the phrase wage fixing, my mind jumps to the various laws that establish wage floors for some government contractor employees. I'm thinking of not only the Fair Labor Standards Act, but also the Department of Labor and FAR requirements imposing minimum wage requirements, the Service Contract Act and the Davis-Bacon Act. In a, in a lay sense, the U.S. government is a big wage fixer. Uh, of course, it sets minimums and not maximums, and it does so lawfully. I'd be curious, though, to get your thoughts on how contractors might think about avoiding wage fixing allegations when they may be participating in industries and in government contracting where the wages are largely dictated by other laws. Does that take any of the risk out of these scenarios for companies? I think that the main point to remember here is that just because the government can do it doesn't mean you can do it as a private company or as a private citizen. I think the government can have all sorts of restrictions and pay rates, and in fact, it does. But that will not be effective justification for any agreements between companies to fix or set wage rates. Uh, that's not going to fly with the DOJ. And a related point I want to make here is that given all the laws on compensation that apply to government contractors, one thing that government contractors might do is try to collect information, whether it's from other companies in the space or from third-party services, where they might try to collect wage information for benchmarking purposes. Um, and historically, this has been an acceptable practice. Um, but one of the things that the Biden executive order mentions is really guidance to uh, the DOJ and the FTC to reconsider re this approach uh, and being perhaps more aggressive on information sharing between employers and making sure that that information sharing is not designed to depress wages of workers. So I think you know what we're seeing now is these no-poach agreements but what we may see in the future uh, in terms of enforcement it may involve not just agreements, but just information sharing across employers. Interesting. So there's a relationship between the legality of these non-solicitation, non-poach agreements and the legality of exclusive teaming agreements between prospective prime contractors and their planned subcontractors, which is another topic of great interest to government contractors. Historically, the thinking was... Or, or has been that is as long as there's a legitimate business purpose between two companies that are not horizontal competitors, they should be able to enter into a narrow exclusive teaming agreement. But the Department of Justice's position in applying the law with respect to non-solicitation agreements to the labor markets, does that pretend a shift in the enforcement posture for exclusive teaming agreements? I would say as attention grabbing as the no poach developments have been, a shift in that area would be even more seismic for the government contracting community. Yeah, I think that's a really good next level style question, Mike. And 
so far, the DOJ hasn't said anything about teaming agreements. Um, I would hope that the DOJ sees the value in companies combining their capabilities uh, using these agreements to bring more effective products and services to their government customers. Uh, but as you know, some of the principles that have guided the DOJ's approach on these labor cases can also be applied to the teaming context. And we've already talked about how uh, consolidation in the defense industry is a concern of the government. So it would not be a surprise to see them turn their gaze to this area next. So, uh, you know, I think that's very astute to, to be focused on this. For example, the DOJ could look at whether exclusive teaming agreements are being used to limit competition for specific projects. One hypothetical example here is if two companies that could otherwise submit competing bids and so instead decide to team up and one's going to be the prime and the other is going to be the sub, uh, the DOJ may take interest in that because it's removing one potential bidder from the marketplace. And as we discussed earlier, the PCSF is using data analytics on government purchasing data. So they can try to look and see if companies are taking turns trading off prime and sub roles as a way to avoid competing head to head. So just like um, hiring and staffing, companies need to be proactive in this area and make sure they're engaging in best practices in terms of documenting the legitimate reasons for practices like exclusive teaming. Companies should also avoid practices that increase risk. For example, if companies are going to team up, their teaming agreement should contain all of the promises between them. There shouldn't be any side deals that aren't documented. And certainly companies should avoid any appearance that they're trading off projects with their potential competitors. Very interesting. I think we should probably leave it there for today. It would be great to have a chance to drill down on a number of other competition issues of interest to government contractors including more on the procurement collusion strike force, the administration's and Pentagon's views on consolidation in the defense industry. We didn't get a chance to touch on the, the FAR requirement to certify independent pricing and potential enforcement in that area or the interplay between antitrust laws and, and the False Claims Act. So I hope you'd be willing to, to come back and join us again and, and kick around those and other issues. Thanks again, Andre. Thanks for having me and, and very happy to come back and talk with you some more, Mike. Thanks again to Andre. I wanted to add one footnote to that discussion. Andre mentioned a DOD report concerning consolidation in the defense industry. That report is titled State of Competition Within the Defense Industrial Base. It was issued by the Undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition and Sustainment on February 15th, and it can be found on both DOD's website and the White House's website. That report cites a 2002 report indicating that during the 1990s, the number of aerospace and defense prime contractors shrank from 51 to 5, with the five remaining being Lockheed Martin, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Northrop Grumman, and Boeing. If you were wondering what Andre was referring to with the 51 to 5 point, which I was, he got that from the Department of Defense report, which is a recent report, but it's citing to an older report. It's worth noting that most of the consolidation the Department of Defense is citing as a cause for concern in 2022 has now been baked into the defense industrial base for over two decades. That's the final point on competition law in this episode, but we may drill down more on the Pentagon's and administration views on consolidation and its impact on industry in a future episode. As the final segment of this episode, I'm going to quickly highlight a few additional legal developments of interest to the government contracts community. A Court of Federal Claims decision on whether companies have an obligation to update agencies on the unavailability of key personnel. 
a GAO decision that underscores the risk of being shut out of GAO if a company informally complains about a solicitation requirement, it does not go to GAO soon enough after having its complaints rebuffed, an update on the Department of Labor's Affirmative Action Contractor Portal, a reminder about the phasing out of DUNS numbers in federal contracting, and a reminder of the new federal contractor minimum wage requirements, which just took effect. The first item is the decision Judge Solomson at the Court of Federal Claims issued in early February in Golden IT LLC versus United States, docketed at 21-1966C. The decision addressed a scenario that's common in federal procurements and that GAO has addressed in numerous decisions, and that is where an offeror's key personnel become unavailable at some point after proposal submission, but prior to award. GAO has sustained protests based on the failure of a company in that scenario to notify the agency and the agency to account for that issue and its evaluation and award decision. In this COFSI protest, the protester alleged that the agency should have downgraded or excluded the awardee for not notifying the agency that one of the awardee's key personnel became unavailable after the awardee submitted its final proposal revision. Judge Solomson acknowledged in dicta that an offeror likely must inform an agency of changes in the availability of key personnel prior to submitting its final proposal revision, but unequivocally rejected the argument that an offeror must inform an agency of changes to the availability of proposed key personnel after submitting its final proposal revision, finding no general authority to require offerors to update the government on a rolling basis, and finding nothing in the solicitation governing that procurement to require notice. Judge Solomson expressly called into question the reasoning in the GAO line of decisions holding there is a general obligation to keep an agency informed of post-submission changes to the availability of key personnel. This is very much a stay-tuned situation and we'll be following it closely. The federal circuit has not addressed this issue and this decision is not binding on COFSI or GAO. That said, if GAO sticks to its guns, it's probably only a matter of time before an awardee loses a GAO based on a key personnel availability issue and then goes to COFSI to try to enjoin the procuring agency from following GAO's recommendation under the theory that the decision underlying GAO's recommendation is legally erroneous and therefore it is irrational for the procuring agency to follow it. The second item I want to highlight briefly is a GAO decision that my colleagues Kara Daniels, Stuart Turner, and Jessica Nezberger wrote about. That decision was issued in the protest of Science and Technology Corporation, docketed as B-4202-16. The upshot of GAO's holding is that where an offer or, or prospective offer or raises concerns with an agency about a solicitation and asks for specific relief, like a change to the solicitation's technical or performance requirements, and the agency indicates expressly or implicitly that it's not going to make the requested changes, that series of events could be treated as an agency-level protest followed by adverse agency action. The implication is the company has only 10 days from the adverse agency action to file its protest with GAO. This was the case in this particular protest, even though the company's letter requesting relaxed requirements was not styled as a protest. GAO indicated that an agency's response need not be direct. An indirect indication to stay the challenge course is enough to start the protest clock at GAO. The takeaway, companies need to be very thoughtful about the implications of correspondents raising concerns with an agency's solicitation, or they may waive their ability to protest those concerns to GAO. As many of you probably know already, GAO's timeliness rules can lead to harsh results, and it's easy to feel for a company that's shut out of GAO based on the application of those rules in a way they arguably should not have foreseen or could not be expected to foresee. That said, if companies were not on notice before, they certainly are now. 
Third, the Department of Labor Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs launched its online contractor portal on February 1st. By June 30th of this year, covered contractors and subcontractors will be required to register and annually certify that they have developed and are maintaining compliant affirmative action programs per Department of Labor rules. Companies can now register for the portal, and as of March 31st, they'll be able to start certifying to compliance. As a reminder, affirmative action program requirements generally kick in when a contractor holds a contract valued at $50,000 or more and employs 50 or more employees. Companies that are subject to affirmative action requirements for the first time will have a period of time to come into compliance, usually 120 days, and then another 90 days to certify compliance in the portal. If you're covered by affirmative action program requirements, now's the time to prepare to comply with the registration and certification requirements. Department of Labor has indicated companies are more likely to be audited if they have not self-certified. Of course, companies should not certify to being compliant unless they are, as that would expose a company potentially to another set of negative repercussions. The Department of Labor has scheduled a webinar for late March to provide more information on the portal. Information on that webinar can be found on the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs website. Fourth, we wanted to remind you that the federal government plans to cease use of DUNS numbers in April and shift over to the use of government-specific Unique Entity Identifier, or UEIs. In theory, this should not require work or be a cause for concern for existing government contractors because if a contractor is in the system for award management, it already has a UEI. You can find it in the core data section of your registration. It's 12 characters and includes numbers and letters. The rub is that the government uses DUNS numbers for so many purposes that the shift to a different identifier does create the possibility for hiccups on the government's end. This is something that we'll track, and if there are developments, we'll highlight them in future episodes. Lastly, we wanted to remind you that the new $15 per hour federal minimum wage requirements imposed by Executive Order 14026 and implemented through FAR 52-22-55 took effect on January 30th. Now, that does not mean that the requirements apply to all covered contracts and covered workers immediately. Because the requirements are implemented through a FAR clause, they'll apply when a contractor first enters into a contract subject to that clause. Companies should expect to see solicitations and contracts, including the clause, if they haven't already. Contracting officers are directed to include the clause when extending, renewing, or exercising an option on an existing contract from here on out. Keep in mind, of course, that contractors may, at least in theory, need to agree to a modification to incorporate the clause. And even where they don't have to agree, they may be positioned to seek additional compensation from the government under the changes clause or a price adjustments clause. The flip side is the government may decline to extend a contract if there's no agreement on the modification surrounding these requirements. As a quick reminder, the requirements apply to workers whose wages are governed by the Fair Labor Standards Act, the Service Contract Act, or the Davis-Bacon Act, and are performing work on or connection with covered federal contracts subject to the clause. There's detailed rules on the applicability and the exceptions, but the requirements are generally prescribed for service contracts subject to the Service Contract Act, construction contracts subject to the Davis-Bacon Act, and concession contracts. The minimum wage will be adjusted effective January 1st of each year starting next year. So $15 applies only for this year. And there's a lower minimum wage for tip workers, but that will be phased out over the next two years. And then tip workers will be subject to the same minimum wage as other workers. The FAR rule is still in interim status, so it's conceivable there could be changes when it's finalized, but don't expect a major overhaul as most of the FAR implementation is dictated by the Department of Labor rules and the underlying executive order. And that's a wrap for this episode. Thanks again to Craig Margolis and Andre Javarola and to Bill for not only his substantive contributions, but also his editing prowess. Thanks to you for listening to this episode of Bonafide Needs. We hope you enjoyed it. Please subscribe to this feed wherever you get your podcasts and look for new episodes dropping soon. Until then.
Bonafide Needs is a joint production of and copyright Arnold and Porter and the Pub K Group. It is produced by Mike McGill and Bill Olfer. Our bookend music is Ambient Piano and Strings by Zachar Balaha via Pixabay.